Please join me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, significant is that word committed. We can sing it, and I pray that you'd help each one of us to be honest with ourselves and see if that describes our relationship as disciples for you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Sending out the 12 from Matthew chapter 10. This is one of those good news, bad news scenarios if you're one of the 12 apostles. If you have a great imagination, or even if you have any kind of imagination, imagine that you're one of the 12, and all of a sudden you realize you're one of the 12. You had no knowledge beforehand that you were going to be, but now you are. And with it comes a huge honor. And with it comes some, some grave, grave responsibilities. But at first, it's the good news that is coming. And so things were looking up for the apostles as we look at the first 15 verses in Matthew chapter 10 to begin with. And again, the honor that went with everything that was going on there, there are six specific areas of good news, all of them pointing to the honor that is theirs. First of all, according to what Luke says, In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, the Lord Jesus spent the whole night before appointing these disciples as apostles, spent the whole night in prayer. This obviously was a very important decision for Jesus to make. It wasn't made lightly. It wasn't made capriciously. Kent Hughes says this about what happened that night when Jesus was praying prior to appointing the apostles. He says, but what is even more arresting here is that he spent the night praying to God, the entire night. If he began after sundown at, say, 8 o'clock p.m. and prayed until sunup, 6 o'clock a.m., he spent 10 hours in focused prayer. The Greek word translated spent the night expresses persevering energy. The spiritual logic is inescapable. If the eternal Son of God could not function as Jesus without dependent prayer, how much more is it essential for us as adopted sons and daughters? What folly if we frame our lives with prayer as window dressing, but we do not really pray? What arrogance to understand Jesus' necessity, but reject it for ourselves? Too often we engage not in dependent prayer, but in obligatory or routine prayer. Jesus didn't say, apart from me, you can do something. Rather, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So things are looking up for the apostles. They're looking up for the apostles because the Lord Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before he selected the 12 of them. And then Jesus called them to himself. Verse 1, chapter 10, tells us that this is now very personal. The Lord Jesus didn't ask for volunteers and take the first ones forward. It was not a lottery. It was after a whole night in prayer to the Father that Jesus personally appointed 12 of the disciples to be his apostles. Called is from the Greek word proskaleo. It's an intense term. It means to call someone to oneself in order to confront him face to face. So picture how personal this is. I don't know how many other disciples would have been around at that particular time, but the Lord Jesus invited 12 of them to a special mission. 12 of them to become his apostles. 
and he called them personally. Here's something else. Jesus selected 12 who would be apostles from this larger group of disciples. So far, it's a great honor for the apostles. It's a great honor because it was very important to Jesus. Jesus showed that in a number of ways. And now there was a large crowd of disciples that could have been chosen, but they were the ones who were chosen. He didn't cut two or three from tryouts. Those of you that are into sports, you understand that there are people that try out for a team, and sometimes there are only a few more players that try out than are chosen. Uh, There weren't two or three, though, that he cut from these tryouts. There was a large crowd. And the word for disciples here is a Greek word, mathetes. It describes those who learn under the instruction of a master teacher. There were a lot of people who learned under Jesus' instruction. Therefore, there were a lot of disciples. In Luke chapter 10, it tells us that Jesus sent out 72 in pairs. At the ascension, there were 120 identified as disciples. Certainly, they were there among others who may have left by that point. The word disciple or disciples is used almost 300 times in the New Testament. In fact, 294 if you want to be exact. I want us to look at some of those uses very briefly. Pastor Kevin's been taking us on a tour of discipleship over a number of months when he's been preaching. But a quick reminder of a couple of things that are here, some of the uses of the word disciple. And here's what I'd like for us to do. Ask ourselves, to which of these areas do we belong? What kind of a disciple are we? Because we're not just talking about the 12. Some of the principles that we're going to see as we keep going apply to those of us in this age and during the time of the tribulation, and certainly right now for us. The first thing that's very, very significant, that is that discipleship does not come without cost. It doesn't come without cost. It may be a great honor for these guys right now. It may be something that they feel that they have been given a huge gift by the Lord Jesus. But discipleship does not come without cost. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 19 through 23, it says, Then a teacher of the law came to him, him is Jesus, and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then it says, Another disciple said to him, including that first individual as a disciple, even though he was a teacher of the law, and even though the implication is that he wouldn't follow Jesus wherever he went. He was a disciple that had some limitations to himself. Again, remember, where do we fit in? Is that describing us? Am I that kind of disciple? Am I that kind of a disciple that when it starts to cost something, I said, you know what, I think it's time for me to back off a little bit. Pastor Kevin was praying for workers. We've got Alden Bible Camp coming up. We've got other situations where we need some people to help. Is the reason why you're not because you've counted the cost and you've said, you know what, this is going to take a lot of time and this is going to take a lot of energy and I really don't want to put that time and energy into it? Or is the reason you're not doing it because you can't? That's a good reason. The others are just excuses. And so the point is discipleship does cost And if I'm really in it to serve Christ, then I'm willing to pay that cost. I'm willing to deny myself, to take up my cross daily, and to follow him. 
So where do I fit into this whole discipleship thing? This teacher of the law came, and then another disciple said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Lord Jesus is talking about priorities. Disciples have right priorities. Those who only play at being a disciple have wrong priorities. Then he got into the boat and his disciples, his disciples, followed him. And uh, you remember strange things happen when they get into boats a lot of the time. Something else about disciples. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, John the Baptist also had disciples. Nothing wrong with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a great man. Scripture makes it very, very clear. But what about today? Are there any among us that Jesus is not really the one we're following? There are other people we're following. Anybody here would suggest maybe uh, you're following Charles Stanley or Andy Stanley. This is the one that I'm a disciple of right now. Alistair Begg or John MacArthur. Or I'm a disciple of that that's old or I'm a disciple with that which is new. Uh, so I'll follow the, the old things, but not the new things. I'll follow the new things, but not the old things. Where are we really being a disciple? Is it to Jesus or is it to substitutes? And we've got to be very, very careful not to have substitutes. And particularly, John the Baptist was a great substitute if we were going to have one. But the Pharisees even had disciples. Those who were totally contrary to the Lord Jesus, they had disciples, and maybe some of us are disciples to those things that Jesus would say, stay away from them completely, and yet we're caught in that. In Matthew 22, verses 15 through 17, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. So their disciples trying to trip Jesus up. Where are we? Are we following leaders who are contrary to Christ or who don't measure up to him at all? Then there is another kind of disciple that I hope we don't have any of them present here. But in a group this size, the chances are there are some. There are fair-weather disciples. We won't take time to go to John chapter 6, but in John chapter 6, the Lord Jesus is giving a very hard teaching to the people. He acknowledges that. They acknowledge that. And a lot of the people who were counted as disciples deserted at that particular point. But it does tell us many of the disciples left, but it says the 12 were among those who stayed. Because it got tough. The teaching got tough. The commitment got tough. And so they left. They were fair-weather disciples. Again, I hope there aren't many or any among us, but there very well possibly could be. Some consider being a disciple of Jesus an insult. And we look at that, and we see that in John chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. This is a story of a blind man who had been healed by the Lord Jesus. The blind man was being interrogated by the religious leaders of that particular time. And he, the blind man, answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Some consider being called a follower of the Lord Jesus as an insult. 
and they don't want to have that said when they're with their friends because it would be embarrassing to them. Because some are undercover disciples. They're secret, clandestine disciples. We learned of one at sunrise service on Easter in John chapter 19, verse 38. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, it said, but secretly for fear of the Jews. How about you? Secretly for fear of those you go to school with, those you work with, those who gather with you at the family celebrations, those who are your neighbors, those you want to be cool with and you can't be cool if you identify as a follower of the Lord Jesus. Again, I hope we don't have undercover disciples here who are literally ashamed of the Lord Jesus, depending on the crowd. We can be chameleons. We can look the part of a disciple here among others who believe in the Lord Jesus, but put us in another element we don't want anybody to know. And that's a shame when that happens. Jesus spent a whole night in prayer and honored 12 apostles by appointing them, calling them to himself personally amidst a lot of other choices of those who said they were disciples, but the Lord Jesus chose those 12. Then he did something else. Jesus granted authority to his 12 disciples that he would then designate as apostles. He granted authority to them. Remember, this is God himself, the only one who can really give authority to anyone, and he gave them authority. He would call them from now on apostles, not just disciples. And what we have in this situation, we have the word authority or exousia in the Greek language. It's from a verb meaning it is lawful, a right or power legitimately delegated. And that's what the Lord Jesus did. He legitimately delegated to them apostles, qualified representatives who were sent out on a mission. So these 12, given authority by the authoritative one to go on a mission directly from Jesus. They were given authority. Catch this now, because this is still the good news. It's getting better and better and better for these apostles. They were given authority, it says, over unclean spirits to cast them out and authority to heal every disease and every affliction. How cool is that? Wouldn't you like to be them? Wouldn't you like to be in that situation? Jesus has gone to a lot of trouble to pick them out and now he gives them authority to do some really, really nice things. I can go out there because I have authority over the spirit world and over sickness, and I can heal every disease that there is. That's a pretty good deal that's working out for them so far. Then we see something else. The apostles didn't know it yet, but little by little they would emerge until they would find out that they were totally unique. First of all, the church was founded on the apostles. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The church itself founded 
on the apostles and the prophets and Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. The apostles, totally unique. That wasn't something that was given to all the other disciples, all the other followers who were there, but the apostles were. The apostles also had to be eyewitnesses of the resurrection. That made them somewhat unique at that particular time. They were chosen personally by Jesus, as we've been seeing here in Matthew chapter 10. They were authenticated by miraculous signs. So once again, this is good news. The good news is just heaping up. It keeps on coming. They were authenticated by miraculous signs. 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The things that mark an apostle, they identify the badge of the apostle. Signs and wonders and miracles were done among the people with great perseverance. Can you imagine them? Here they are, one minute, they're disciples. There are a few among many. And Jesus spends a whole night in prayer. Jesus calls them personally. He appoints them as apostles. They're unique. They're able to do a whole lot of things to identify as apostles. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the apostles. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These apostles were unique. Their uniqueness was coming out and coming out further and further. They had absolute authority in the early church. Absolute authority, in fact, it tells us in Acts 2.42, the early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That was what was significant at that particular time. One of the reasons that was significant was because the New Testament books were all written by the apostles or their close associates, including the Apostle Paul. Another point in their uniqueness, they have been given an eternal and unique place of honor. Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, when we're talking about that heavenly scene, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles. And what a great way to put it, 12 apostles of the Lamb. What a privilege to be called that and to be honored in that particular way. To this high calling emerged the following, and I'm not going to put the names on the screen. You know them. They're in the Scripture before us. But Simon, also known as Peter, Andrew, Peter's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, James's brother, and also the son of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel in John's gospel, Thomas, called Didymus, or the twin in John's gospel, Matthew, also known as Levi, another James, this one the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, also known as Judas, but not Judas Iscariot, Simon the zealot, and then Judas Iscariot, brought up the rear, the one who betrayed him, also known as Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. These 12, what made those men special? What made them special? And I could ask the same thing, what makes you special? What makes all of us special? And the answer is Jesus made them special just as he makes us special. His resurrection did. The empowering of the Holy Spirit did. But there was nothing in and of themselves that made anything special. Who would have ever thought that the apostles, four fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, 
That wasn't his vocation, but described there. And then others, we don't know much at all about what they did or who they were, except in the context of when they were with Jesus. Who would have ever thought that these ordinary people would actually be the ones to turn the world upside down? Those 12, you could say 12 nobodies. And Jesus goes off into a mountain and he prays all night and then personally he selects them and appoints them and gives them authority. And look what's happening. The good news for them just keeps building up and building up and building up. But listen to how they're described. When we think about the 12, we can think of a number of embarrassing episodes in their lives. Quarrels arose about seats of honor in the kingdom. There was pride, rivalry, competition, terror in storms, rebuking people who brought children to Jesus, terrified at the transfiguration, failing to heal people, indignant at the woman wasting perfume on Jesus, all the bravado that they would die with Jesus, and yet they all deserted him every one of them, found sleeping three times when Jesus needed them the most, forgetting to bring bread, rebuking Jesus. Can you imagine that? Rebuking Jesus. No, Jesus, that's not the way that it should be. Don't let that ever happen. Often clueless about what seemed to be straightforward enough statements Jesus made. Huddled for fear in an upper room, fishing for fish after the resurrection. That wasn't what Jesus called them to do. He called them to be fishing for people. These are classic exhibits of the truth of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's turn there together. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Verses that we've heard before that describe them, that describe us, and describe what it is that God can do with the ordinary people. 1 Corinthians one twenty six. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Classic examples before us. How did they get to be apostles? Through nothing of their own. Everything of the Lord Jesus. The ones Jesus called to be his apostles left no room for bragging on their part. One writer has said this. Think about the ramifications of this. From our human perspective, the propagation of the gospel and the founding of the church hinged entirely on 12 men whose most outstanding characteristic was their ordinariness. That's the best we can say about them. Their most noteworthy characteristic, the fact that they were ordinary. Well, it gets better. We're still in the good news phase, and it's getting better and better. 
Jesus sent out his apostles with certain instructions. And if you're an apostle now, one of these 12 who all of a sudden have been singled out from all of the rest of them, and Jesus says, here's a mission, you're going out, here's what I want you to do. Even this is something that is good for them. He says, first of all, don't go to the Gentiles or to the Samaritans. Can you imagine the apostles' reaction? Good, who wants to go to them anyway? I was a little worried about that because Jesus seems to kind of take a liking to them. He's done some very nice things for some Gentiles and for some Samaritans. I'm certainly glad that we don't have to defile ourselves and go out there and be among them. Some of you are saying, you know what? Why would Jesus say that? Jesus did love everybody. He died for the world, including the Samaritans and the Gentiles. Why would he be doing this? Well, this was only for this particular mission. This was only meant for this one time. And somebody comments on that. Why is that? That this was a temporary command is seen not only from the clear call of the Great Commission, but from the fact that Jesus had already ministered both to the Gentiles and Samaritans. He had healed the Gentile centurion servant and had first revealed himself publicly as the Messiah to the Samaritan woman of Sychar, who believed in him herself and led other Samaritans to saving faith. So what did Jesus say? He said, go to the lost sheep of Israel, to the Jew first. And then also to the Greek, as it says in Romans 1.16. That's what was happening here. Not excluding Samaritans and Gentiles, but there's a priority to the lost sheep of Israel. And here's what to proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Can you imagine being the ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ and being able to say that? The king is right here, right now. That's the message that I'm going to give coupled with all of these other things to give them credibility. What a great place to be in for these individuals. And here's what to do once again. Heal the sick, and now it's added, raise the dead. What? Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. According to verse 8, do it for free also. You receive this authority without paying, so give without pay. Verse 9, you don't have to accumulate a lot of money to do this. Don't take your savings with you. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Don't load up. It's not on you. No luggage. It says no bag for your journeys. No luggage. No change of clothes. No extra sandals or a staff. Because the laborer deserves his food. In other words, others can provide for you. You're not exactly going to be living off the land, but you'll be living off the people in the land, and you deserve it because you're a worker for the Lord Jesus Christ. Find a bed and breakfast. Give your hosts a proper greeting. Don't settle anywhere. Verse 13, if the house is worthy, let your peace come on it. Verse 13, second part of the verse, if the house is not worthy, let your peace return to you. In other words, no shalom for these people if they're not worthy. Otherwise, give them that shalom. Give them that peace. Give them that benediction. Give them that prayer. Give them that extra kindness. But otherwise, you're not obligated to do that. And here's what you're to do according to verse 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dirt from your feet when you leave that house or town. Symbolize the fact that 
You're not going to have anything to do with them that what they did is not on you, it's on them. And then it says they will incur a greater judgment than Sodom or Gomorrah. What the Lord's telling them is, I've got your back. They don't treat you well. What do you think is going to happen to them? It's going to be worse than Sodom or Gomorrah. Again, imagine the apostles now. This is all good news. This is fantastic. Even when people don't accept us, God's got our back. Jesus has given us a great mission, a great ministry. I said good news, bad news scenario. The bad news shows up in verse 16. Ominous times were coming. Along with everything good come some things that most of us would say are not good. Ultimately, they are. But at first glance, these ominous times are not welcome times. And it's not just for the 12. Someone has commented, I think, very, very um, well on this point. Some of the specifics Jesus taught in this chapter applied only to the apostles. Yet in principle, they apply to his witnesses in every generation. Jesus pictures the 12 in their full mission. And then he pictures all those who would continue to represent him throughout redemptive history, including those who will suffer for his sake during the Holocaust in the Great Tribulation. In other words, this passage has some immediate and future significance and fulfillment. The apostles, though, didn't raise the dead during this brief mission. At least it's not recorded. Nor at any other time during Jesus' own earthly ministry. Nor did they experience direct persecution until after the ascension. A few things in keeping with what Jesus got, but they really were persecuted after the ascension. And so the Lord Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the middle of wolves. You notice he didn't even say, I'm sending you out where there are wolves. No, you're going to be right in the middle of wolves. Can you imagine you're turning around in a circle and you're seeing wolves all around and you're understanding that you're in grave danger because when they're packed like that, they usually mean business. Sending you out as sheep in the middle of wolves, so play it smart. As wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. And beware of people. Beware of men. They're going to do the following. They're going to take you to court. They're going to flog you in their synagogues. They're going to drag you before government leaders, governors, kings. But all this is for Jesus' sake. Are you sure you want to be an apostle? Are you sure you want to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because that continues. That's going on and on and on to this day. They're going to get to bear witness for Jesus before them and before the Gentiles. Turn with me to John 15, please. John chapter 15, verse 18. This may not seem like good news, but this is what Jesus said to his followers. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus is saying, do you know what? There's a lot of good news with this. But to be perfectly honest with you, there's some real hardships. And if you really want to be a disciple, you've got to be prepared to suffer. You've got to be prepared for persecution. I waited to get an illustration from one of our missionaries. I knew one would come this week, and I know one will come next week, and I know one will come the next week after that. Not able to give you a lot of detail, but those of you that know the situation will know the detail that I'm not mentioning. This came in an email. I want to pass this very important prayer request along so that you can pray specially for our brothers and sisters in India who are experiencing increased incidents of persecution. Please pray for our own team members. I received a text from a team member from a local pastor telling him to be careful as they learned of Hindu extremists who entered a church during the Easter service, beat up the parishioners, and shut down the church just outside of that city. Of course, the local church pastors are on high alert. Our camp is set to start, Lord willing, in the next four hours, and it did on Thursday. That's already taken place. Please pray for the spiritual and physical protection of our campers, mobilizers, counselors, volunteers, and our own staff. After this camp, our team will be going to another city, and this one we can still pray about, home to 10,000 Hindu temples, which is in the same state. The second city is known to be the hotbed of radical Hinduism and also the holiest place for Hindus. Please do not post this email because it has camp locations. Hindu world. We don't hear about the Hindu world that much. We hear a lot about the Muslims. We had a lot of missionaries who have come in back and forth and during the missionary conference who say, please don't record anything about my name, my circumstances, or anything else. Why? Because there is persecution going on all over the world. What do we do when this happens? Well, it tells us in verses 19 and 20, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. So you don't have to get uptight. You don't have to do all this preparation. Please understand that's not for teachers. That's not for teachers. You're still to do preparation, still study. Don't get up in front of your class and say, the Lord's going to give me what to say. Uh, we're supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. But in this particular case, you're going to be called to testify for the Lord Jesus Christ it's going to be persecution. It's going to be before courts of men. Don't get uptight about it. God's going to give you what to say, and he has over and over and over again down through the centuries. won't be you speaking. You'll just be a channel. The Spirit of God is going to speak through you. But here's how bad that it can get. Family members will sell each other out, according to verse 21. This is so sad. Brother will deliver brother over to death. Can you imagine that? My brother and I were as tight as you can be. I see Dick Osteen down there. I know his brother's with the Lord too, and they were, they were close. Can you imagine that? Brother will deliver brother over to death? The father, his child? Can't even imagine that in a million years. Children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
still want to be a disciple? A real one? Not an undercover one? Not one who's deserted, but a real one? Who's willing to take the bad with the good? Who's willing to take the ridicule with the praise? Who's willing to take the scorn along with those others who might be encouraging us? But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The enduring won't save him, but the enduring will show that that salvation has been secured. It shows the reality of salvation. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. We're not asking for trouble. We don't have to stay there and be persecuted. Wisdom sometimes says it's time to get away from that. Yet at the same time, in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus may be persecuted. Is that what it says? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what's the word? Will be persecuted, not may be persecuted. Philippians 1, 29 and 30, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. All through the centuries, there's been persecution of believers, real disciples, not the ones who flee whenever there's any trouble. You understand, we saw a picture of the empty Colosseum. Now we see a picture of the Colosseum with the lions that are there. The people that are there in the stands, I hate to say this, but they're worse than Philadelphia fans. Worse than Philadelphia fans throwing snowballs at Santa Claus. They're rooting for the lions to tear these Christians apart. That's historical. Burning Christians at the stake. Coming closer to our times, Jim Elliott I remember as a young boy, my, my parents were friendly with the family of Jim Elliott, and I know we heard all about what was going on uh, with these five missionaries who were martyred by the Aka Indians, known as the Aka Indians at that time. Getting closer to our time, the, the persecution from real disciples who were not afraid. Maybe they were afraid, but they did it anyway to go out and serve the Lord. This couple, Martin and Gracia Burnham, you may recall that's getting closer to our time, and they were killed in the Philippines by terrorists who were there operating. And it continues. This is all too familiar to us today. And I'm sorry to even have to show this, but it's part of the world in which we're living today. It's all over. It's in Egypt and there are one of our missionaries whose name we very rarely mention is involved in ministry there. There are churches that get trashed sometimes with people inside them and sometimes when people are not inside them. And it all comes as a result of the cross. And that's why it's getting burnt. And when we want to identify with the cross and with the Lord Jesus, then we have to be ready for whatever it is that he brings our way. Discipleship. He sent out 12. It was great news. What, what, a, what a story behind all the nice things that they were able to participate in. But they had to be ready to count the cost. They had to be ready to look at the one they put on the cross and say, we're identifying with him. And he said, they're going to treat you the same way they treated me. You still want to be a disciple? 
I hope so, because it's the greatest calling in all the world. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending out the 12 and beyond them. As they carried out the message, they did their job, they carried the torch and they passed it on. And it got passed on and on and on. And somebody gave it to us. We don't want to extinguish it. It's too important. It's too significant. So thank you for the challenge in Jesus' name. Amen.